0: Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Reel. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. Welcome to Newcastle's First Storytellers.
1: I'd like to say Mirumbina, Kawi Ti, Baci, Antin, Telewallunuranga, Wadjidjukul, Kuriguris Maris and Moolumbimba. So I said, welcome friends, come here, all of you sit down and listen as we speak the truth about Aboriginal people here in this place in Newcastle. Okay, welcome John. Thank you for coming along to the podcast station for the Newcastle Libraries. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: It's a pleasure to be here and uh, John Maynard, uh, Professor John Maynard these days, a proud Warramai man, um, born and bred in Newcastle. Um, I was born what was Newcastle Hospital, which is no longer there now, it's luxury apartments up there Foster now. Five-star hotel. Yes, ahead. that's right. And I was born at the old hospital in 1954, so I'm 66 this year. So I stretch back some way now. So I've seen many changes in the city from an Aboriginal perspective, and even in the wider sense. Um, certainly, um, the industry that was and is now no longer, and many other things. But it's always been a beautiful location incredible beaches and lake macquarie and port stevens and the vineyards and the mountains and we've got it all
1: we sure do awesome and what are you working on at the moment
2: I'm working on several different things. Um, I'm working on, a, well, the last four or five years, a history of the New South Wales Aborigines Protection Welfare Board, and um, that includes four other Indigenous historians. Um, Dr Ray Kelly's on board with that as well, and Laurie Bamblett, um, Jackie Troy, and um, Lorena Barker, So um, and Victoria Haskins uh, at the University of Newcastle, non-Indigenous researcher, and my wife. So there's been a team on that, which is... Looking at what happened to our people under the control of the New South Wales State Government from 1883 through to 1969 and the life on the missions and reserves, but turning it around a little bit more to study and analyse who the board were, who were these people that made these decisions that impacted so horrifically on our lives. So um, that's what that study is about. So it's it's a good one.
1: And that's been for four years.
2: Yes, it, it ends at the end of this year, and okay. we'll be writing up a book. So uh, yeah, it, it's been a great project, and we've done lots of interviews in communities all the way across the state. So very, very rich and good material. Yeah, it
1: must have been lots of tragedy and
2: oh, kids being taken, you know, and uh, land being taken, and um, it's just a you know the story of our lives across the 20th century. When you look at it, you know the segregation and assimilation, and as I said, the the stolen generations I mean had such an horrific impact on onto our families. Well, we've- all been touched by that
1: yeah and how do you look after yourself and um, protect your energy when you are going through and doing all that research and all those interviews and listening to those stories how do you keep going
2: yeah look it it depends on the situation there's also a lot of fun you know blackfellas I mean there's a lot of laughter and when you get into a conversation there's a lot of a lot of humor as well it's not all negative yeah But I've been involved with, I was involved with the um, National Library's Bring Them Home oral history project, and that was a very jolting project where I was interviewing people who'd been taken and institutionalised, and some of whom, and many of whom, had been through horrific experiences in their young life, abused in in those institutions, and abused again into the places they were sent into, and... You know, I I still say, and I'm touching the bench in front of me here, that I wake up sometimes and I I can hear those voices of those stories that have been relayed to me. So you really do need to um, take on board that and try and deal with it the best way you can. But it's also playing a service because a lot of those people that I interviewed through those years, they hadn't even told their own family members some of those experiences that they'd suffered. And in some sense, it's like releasing a pressure valve of people that have kept that memory Mm -hmm. slammed down, you know, for most of their life and then being suddenly in a comfortable situation and where they felt uh, free to say say what they'd experienced and um, very moving, very powerful, you know, and as I said, some horrific stories.
1: Thank you. Thank you for touching on that. I think yeah. it's I think it's really important especially in this day and age with everything that's happening in the media and with social media mm. and what's happening in the world is, you know, and especially for Aboriginal people, how do you go to work mm. and how do you how do you keep your energy and how do you still have conversations with your white colleagues? You know, when you're seeing all this injustice happening, mm. people think it happened so long ago and it only happens in, you know, in mm. America. So mm. how do you do that? How do mm. you go and perform and how do you be yourself and
2: I think our people have always done that, you know, and I look back at my grandfather as a very prominent early Aboriginal activist. He's the, he's the driver for everything that I do in my life, and not just my academic life, but how I, how I behave in life. And they were doing that through all of those years, a hundred years ago. standing up, speaking out, challenging governments, you know, challenging wider, wider Australia to the things that had happened in this country. And, of course, you touched on that. It seems to be politicians, particularly John Howard, was very good at saying that happened in the past. We're not responsible. They are responsible in the fact of what happened to our people and making up for that today, recognising that. And we can only get to that point of healing from the past if we recognise it. Mm. And there's this failure to sweep it under the mat, and then firmly hammered the mat back down onto the floor and that's back there somewhere. So it's important we have these conversations and the things that are happening at the moment um, with Black Lives Matter and certainly those horrific deaths in the United States, but also here, you know, with what happened with the Black Deaths in Custody Report back in 1991, we know over 430 Aboriginal people have died since, Mm -hmm. you know, that horrific moment. And really... What steps were taken? They never took up the recommendations. These are the conversations we've got to keep hammering home to people. But again, through the recent rallies and the marches and... Looking at Survival Day in recent times, there's been an incredible mobilisation of non-Indigenous support. And this is what we need. We will change nothing in this country as a heavily marginalised minority. We've got to win middle ground of white Australia and bring them with us. And those things in recent years, Survival Day and these recent rallies, have recognised that thousands of non-Indigenous people prepared to walk, Stand up and raise a voice alongside us. We need more of it. Yeah. Let's encourage it.
1: Keep on
2: coming, guys. Thanks for being part of our story
0: and listening to Newcastle's first storytellers. Always was. Always will be. Find more information about our Aboriginal history via the Newcastle Library History Collection.
1: Your contribution to Aboriginal culture and history has transformed the way Australians understand the impact of colonisation on Aboriginal communities. How important it is to make sure history that we provide opportunities for the community to learn about Australia?
2: Yeah, look, I've I've, I've I've spoken about this many times. I mean, I come into university when I was 40 years of age. I left school at the age of 15. I don't have any fond memories of school. It wasn't a great place in the 50s and 60s. For me, there was nothing about us in the school curriculum or the history books. It was all about white discoverers and explorers and settlers and whole host of people, but we weren't in it except as relics of the Stone Age and the dying race. I've always wanted to change that. And I come into university... Just to, well, I didn't come into university to enrol. I just went out there for some ideas that I might explore because I was doing my grandfather's story just for my family. Yeah. And then I was kidnapped into doing a, a course there and it's gone on to where I am today and 12 books. But what I've set out to do from the outset... Not write for the universities. I don't write in mainstream audiences for their dissemination. Primarily, it's all about writing for our mob, that they can read the stuff that I write. They can enjoy it. They can gain inspiration from it, particularly our young ones. that They've got heroes and heroines of their own in the past, which I certainly was deprived of and a lot of the people of my generation were, we didn't we didn't see them. We weren't able to get any access to that material because it wasn't there. Mm. So that's the difference is being able to write this stuff that challenged these white histories of the past and the myths and um, legends of white Australia which we need to challenge. So, um, yeah, that's, that's been the driver for me.
1: What are some of the defining moments for you as an academic and... Historian.
2: (laughs) Oh, look, many, many rewarding moments. I guess for me, it's, again, what I just touched on then about reaching out to our communities and not being confined. And I've had the incredible, great fortune to work in our communities right across the country, urban, rural and remote, many, many communities on history projects, oral history projects, um, in health, in history, in education, politics, a whole vast sport area and, you know, really... It gives our mob a lift to see you've done this, you know, and that's what I see as a role to encourage others because for us, our history is like a giant jigsaw puzzle with most of the pieces missing today mm. still and is it encourages many others to come into this space and put more pieces back into the puzzle so that we have a more complete understanding of the past because all of our mob have incredible stories of courage Mm -hmm. um, in their own families. So it's encouraging others into that space, which is, uh, again, a real driver for me and where I speak often, not just in universities but on the ground, you know, out in communities. So that's that's the most important thing for me.
1: Yeah. How long did it take for you to become an academic?
2: Right. Okay. Well, I, as I said, I came into university by luck. I didn't come to enrol. I was kidnapped into doing a diploma course, which was two years. Then I did a BA, which I also did in two years. And then I did a PhD also in two years. So I did all of it in six years. So it should have been longer than that. It should have been, you know, eight or nine years, but I did it in six. Um, and How as did I, you
1: do it so fast?
2: Um, <laughs> very driven. Yeah. <laughs> Very driven, but also with Wallatuka at the University of Newcastle, it was vastly different to what I'd experienced at school, where there was no encouragement or support, and there was nothing about us in the material you were reading. Um, I took to it like a duck to water because you had Aboriginal lecturers, you had Aboriginal people, you know, who ran the centre, and it was a completely different space. And um, and that's the beauty of what Wallatuka is. Mm. I mean, um, and has been for such a long period of time. It's a totally different environment to what we were used to, certainly my generation coming yeah. through school. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it took six years and I said a PhD and, um, you know, 12 books and I've delivered lectures at Harvard and um, in England and all over the place.
0: Thanks for listening to Newcastle's First Storytellers. Always was, always will be. Access these stories and more from Newcastle Library's website or app.
1: So any advice for any, I guess, any of our mob wanting to go to uni but kind of scared to think that they, I guess, can't do it or they're not smart
2: enough? This is the thing for me. I mean, I was there the first two weeks at university in the diploma course. You I mean, as I said, I come through a school system where there was no encouragement or system in my time. And I had no self-confidence in that space. And the first two weeks was the most difficult for me. I thought, oh, this is a joke. I should have come here years ago. This is too late. You're too old, you know. You're not going to get this stuff, you know. The most important thing was for me was to get through that first two weeks. And then it was, I I took to it, as I said, like like a duck to water. So take these opportunities that are there now, as opposed to that weren't there in the past. When I come through the school system, and as I said, I left school in 1969, there was no thought or idea that we as Aboriginal people could go to university. Mm. And it wasn't until the 80s, you know, that there was an, an avenue then through into Wallatuka at the University of Newcastle. So that was a 20-odd years on. And the reality is today we've got doctors, we've got nurses, we've got lawyers. There was even a pilot coming through at the University of Newcastle. And I speak at schools and I say to our kids... If you apply yourself, if you work hard, really motivate yourself in that sense. If you want to be an astronaut in the future and fly a rocket ship to Mars, you can. And there's a lot of people to assist these days as opposed to the past instead of putting hurdles in front of us and yeah. telling us we're we're not going to achieve.
1: Do you have a favourite place or a favourite story?
2: This region, I mean, as I said, I, I grew up here and I mean, I... um. I've moved and travelled a lot. I've, I've been around the world, I mean, in, in that sense. And that's been a, a journey, remarkable journey in itself. But it's this place, and I touched on it before, the incredible beaches and Lake Macquarie and Port Stephens and the vineyards and the mountains. We live in such a, a beautiful location. And it's also the, the sense of, um, as far as stories go, you don't have to go to Arnhem Land or the Red Centre there's stories here embedded in this place. And I've spoken about them, you know, the kangaroo inside Nobbies and, you know, Belmont Lagoon when the moon cried and, you know, and the monster out at Sugarloaf. And there's so many stories that we're fortunate that Biruban passed to Threlkeld nearly 200 years ago yeah. that were recorded in the language and cultural knowledge that was unlike anywhere in southeastern Australia, Mm. of that sort of knowledge and the amount of it that was recorded, it's one of the richest treasures, Aboriginal cultural treasures in the continent. Mm -hmm. So we're extremely lucky. So they're the stories that I I certainly look to for inspiration.
1: I think we've touched about this before, but it does talk about where do you get your inspiration. I believe you said from your grandfather or Mm -hmm. what drives and motivates you.
2: Yep, certainly my grandfather, who died sadly eight years before I was born. But when I was 40, my father said to me, I was out of work, I'd just come out of a marriage and I think my father was looking upon me as a complete failure <laughs> at the time, like get off your bum and do something and he said, look, because one thing I'd done, I'd love to read ever since I was little, despite the you know, the experiences at school not being encouraging or supportive, I read a lot and I loved to write, so, I mean that was the thing that stuck through me right through so the old man said to me, I want you to Put together the old man story, like my grandfather. We knew he'd been a prominent Aboriginal activist, but get some of his letters and the newspaper accounts and the family photographs and write it up into what I had envisioned, just an exercise book and... They'd hand it over to my father, uncle's aunt, his cousins, extended family members, and there would be my grandfather's story. And as I said, I finished up and got kidnapped into doing university, and it became my PhD, and then subsequently a book, Fight for Liberty and Freedom, and I've been writing about that ever since. And the reality is it's a history that this country wasn't aware of. The first united all Aboriginal political organisation, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, was led by my grandfather Fred Maynard, who formed that movement in 1924, and they were operational through to 1929, before they were hounded out of existence by the police acting for the New South Wales uh, Protection Board. But they brought up the things that we're still fighting for today. Their platform was demanding enough land for each and every Aboriginal family in the country. My grandfather said, we have overriding rights above all others in our land. And he made that statement in 1925. Self-determination. They were front-page news with the first Aboriginal Civil Rights Convention held at um, St David's Church and Hall in Surrey Hills in 1925. Front-page news. Aborigines demand self-determination. This is 50 years before the Whitlam government is credited with putting up self-determination. They demanded that the protection boards be abolished and to be replaced by an all-Aboriginal board to sit under the Commonwealth Government, which is the Uluru Statement, the voice that they're talking about today. Mm. They wanted to protect a distinct Aboriginal cultural identity, stories, songs, dance. We wouldn't be in the same position today of trying to put this fractured jigsaw puzzle back together again. Absolutely. And they demanded citizenship and... um, um am, 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 am i forgetting something but that was the importance of that platform and except all of those things we're still fighting for today mm. so he was a big influence on to me of putting his story together and the incredible material i was able to um, find and also the people I was able to speak to many of whom are past now but who knew my grandfather or were connected with the movement in those days so um, you know it was a it's been a remarkable journey that's
1: incredible and you didn't get to meet him
2: no I said he died eight years before oh. I was born so and he copped a lot of police attention there was an interview um, in 1927 where he said that he'd been warned on many occasions by the police that the doors of Long Bay Jail were opening for him and he had to stop speaking out and he said I will not stop speaking out on the rights of Aboriginal people in this country. I don't care if they sent me to jail for the rest of my life. I will highlight the shocking conditions of our people and the atrocious act that reels over us. So those were the things that um, that he challenged during those years. Oh, man.
0: Mm-hmm. This is Newcastle's first storytellers. Always was, always will be. Newcastle Libraries has an inspiring array of e-learning and programs for you to be a part of. To access them, visit Newcastle Libraries' website or app.
1: You have contributed to many national organisations. You have been actively involved in numerous Aboriginal education and community organisations. Can you tell us about any future plans or projects?
2: Yeah, I'm looking to retirement. (laughs) (laughs) No! Sixty-six this year. like a touch wood. I mean, this cabinet thing. Yeah, but anyway, no. Look, I mean, I will continue doing what I what I do, and I mean, I've I've, I've got. A, a, I only wished I had another lifetime to carry on doing the stuff that I do, and um, I'll be writing, you know, more histories and um, driven to do so and put us back into the national story, which we should never have been deprived from. So that's the driver for me, and I'll continue to do that until the day I drop.
1: (laughs) I guess the last question I have is this year's NADOC theme, Hmm. always was, always will be, Hmm. and what does that mean to you?
2: Again, it goes all the way back to my grandfather, you know, and that first ever national land rights agenda, which they put up as part of their political platform and demanded enough land for each and every Aboriginal family in the country. And his words again, we have overriding rights above all others in our land. Always was, always will be uh, one of our mantras. So, yeah, that's it.
1: Any other things that you wanted to talk about or...? Um,
2: No, I think, again, touching on history, and I mentioned that, I think it's important, again, and I'll just stress that again, that our mob really pick up and push for this. I mean, we've got lots of people going into medicine and law and all sorts of areas, education. We need historians. You can count on two hands the number of trained Aboriginal historians in Mm -hmm. the country. Yet every Aboriginal community in this country is doing family and community history today. So we need people to step into that space mm-hmm. and really, as I said, put those pieces back in the puzzle. I can't do it all. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and so how how would a person become a historian?
2: Go to university and you, you take up a degree and then go on and get a PhD, you know, in, in history, certainly with an Aboriginal theme and in an Aboriginal way, and then go on from there. I mean... We have, it, as I said, a multitude of non-trained historians out there in communities, but if they're backed up with those experiences and armed with how to get into these archives, how to get this material which has been buried there, and believe me, there's a lot of our voices buried in these archives mm-hmm. which needs to come out, and, I mean, we're the ones to do that. We're the ones to deliver those stories, that knowledge, and release it into the wider sphere, particularly for our own community's use.
1: What's your
2: favourite thing about Newcastle? Oh, favourite thing about Newcastle? Oh, the beaches are just fabulous. I mean, you know, not that I surf these days. I mean, I have trouble walking around, let alone getting on a board or anything. Were you but, a surfer? Uh, years ago, yes, years ago. But um, I love just going and sitting at the beach. I love fishing. So there's that and it's just the the um, the space. I mean, just sitting by the water. Saltwater fellow me. Yeah. I like lobsters, I like mud crabs, I like prawns, I like oysters. So anything like that Where's so. the best place to get them? Ah, oh, poor Stevens, of course. <laughs> Why am I a country? <laughs> That's the, right. The centre of the universe. The blue water wonderland.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And for anyone listening to this, I guess, what's the top three spots you would recommend for people to visit? Oh,
2: well, Lake Macquarie, Port Stephens and Newcastle Beaches and Merriweather. I was in the summertime. I go to Meriwether Pool every morning and have a swim. It's beautiful over there. I went out to Glenrock for a walk yesterday. Yeah. And that's fantastic. I mean, it's been years since I've been out there and had a walk through the bush out there. It was quite a nice day yesterday. And, I mean, having a space like that in National Park so close to the the city centre is stunning stunning we're lucky
1: did you see any animals out there
2: i saw quite a few bush turkeys (laughs) any snakes no no snakes okay
1: racism in australia and racism in newcastle do you believe that's something that happens here still
2: it's it's everywhere it's everywhere you only have to scratch the surface in this country and the white australia the old white australia policy is lurking underneath that's not to say, look, I've done a lot of history studies in this area and I did with the closing of BHP and I, I think you got Uncle Bill Smith coming in at some point to talk to him. I mean, I did the study with those men who worked for Smith's general contractors and worked for BHP, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s and um, I expected to do interviews with a lot of those old fellas in that company that racism was you know, rampant in the BHP. But they all said anybody who put their hand up with big harry's place got a job it didn't matter who you were or where you came from there's been some incredible first in this city the newcastle city council raising the aboriginal flag and the reconciliation act that they they had all those years ago which were sort of groundbreaking but again i come back to the point that doesn't make newcastle some non-racist utopia it ain't so it's there and it, it's sadly hopefully with things that are happening in recent times there's a movement of change for people, particularly non-Indigenous people, to recognise this, and they are, and to stand up, walk with us, speak with us and challenge these shocking things who are not just in the past but are there right today
1: And where can non-Aboriginal people in Newcastle learn more about you know, what has happened to Aboriginal people here in Newcastle and what continues to happen today?
2: Yeah, well attend rallies and marches like we had the other week that Linda June co-organised I think there's another one coming up this weekend I yep. think, Yep. so there's a thought of things that you need to get along to and uh, support us and march with us and speak with us and you'll only learn from that experience and also, as I said, take on board the incredible long Aboriginal cultural historical connection to this country and place. You'll be enriched by it. Yeah.
1: Thank you. All
2: that's, right. That's Pleasure. Pleasure. It's
1: been so wonderful to hear
2: Thank from you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Newcastle's First Storytellers. Always was, always will be. If you enjoyed our story, be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen.
2: This has been a Newcastle Library's Real Production.